Well, good morning, church. That is the portion of the church that is immune to the Baptist kryptonite that is rain. Uh, welcome, welcome. Actually, the first service was was packed, so that's, that must be all the people that were uh, were immune. But we're so glad that you're here this morning. And as is becoming immediately apparent, I'm not uh, Pastor Aaron. Uh, Pastor Aaron is a little under the weather uh, yesterday. He called me last night about 7.30 and asked if I wouldn't come and preach this morning. And so um, there's nothing that... Uh, let you know just how inadequate you are as to try to prepare in 12 hours, but it's good. It's humbling. We should remember that none of us are ever, uh, none of us are ever adequate. It's only through the Spirit of the Lord that we're able to do this. I, I would ask that you pray for Aaron. Um, he, like I said, is not feeling well. We don't believe it's uh, COVID. He's had a couple of negative tests, but um, he thought it best to just stay home this morning, especially with it being the Christmas week that he didn't want to risk uh, getting anybody sick or anything like that. And so um, just pray for him that he would be uh, feeling better quickly. Uh, this morning, church, we're, we're continuing on in our series, Come Thou the King, and we're actually going to be picking up uh, in Matthew right where we left off um, last week. So Matthew chapter 2. And as we've been thinking about it uh, over the past couple of weeks, you know, we kind of started off by talking about the king that will come, right? We took a look at the promises of God really throughout, through the ages, but since the beginning of time, since the, the beginning of humanity, God had been promising this king that will come. And then last week, we were looking at the king that is coming, and what we started to see, and as I reflected on the message from last week, you know, what was apparent to me is that not only was this a king that will come, a promise that was made by God, but the king in his coming is a promise that was fulfilled by God. God, in his sovereignty, fulfilled his own promises in the coming of the king. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the king that has come. Uh, and so... I want you guys to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 12 this morning. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And Herod the king heard this, and he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when, when, they, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, 
they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your word that has been preserved to this day. Lord, that we might know your truth, that we might see it, that we might hear a word from you this morning. Lord, would you speak now through your word? Lord, set aside any cleverness or eloquence that might be in me, Lord, and speak to your people through your word, to our hearts, Lord, that we might not accumulate knowledge, but that we might be conformed more and more into the image of your son, Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we see at the beginning of this text that the king has come. It tells us right there. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. You see, this is really the first mention of Jesus's actual birth that we get in the book of Matthew. There's nothing that uh, that happens before this other than the announcement, the heralding of his uh, coming birth. And yet, these are the first words we see. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So the king has come, and yet it seems that nobody really notices. The, the king has come, and yet there's not really much happening to recognize this amazing thing that has happened until the wise men come on the scene. And I want to ask you for a moment this morning to set aside the things that you, you think you might know about the wise men. Because we probably all right now, as we were reading the story, we have a picture in our mind of what these wise men look like. And it probably, for most of us, mirrors our nativity scene, right? Like if you have a nativity scene in your house and you, you know that they're almost all the same, even though they're different, you know, different little embellishments, but they're all the same picture, right? You have Jesus, you have him laying in a manger, you have Mary, you have Joseph, you've got the shepherds, and then you've got wise men, right? How many of them are there? Three, right? There almost always are three. So we got these three wise men there at the birth of Jesus when he's a little baby in our manger scene, and this is the picture that a lot of times we hold in our minds. And yet, as we open these pages here, we, we see that, one, we're, we're never told. There's nowhere in Scripture that tells us that there were three wise men. Uh, even though we sing, we three kings of Orient old, there's, there's nowhere that we're told that there are three. There might be three. I'll give you that. There may be three, but we don't know that. And so this morning, we're going to look at what we do know. Also, we see in this text that uh, it tells us towards the back half, and we're going to get there, that when they saw the house where the child was, they went into him. And so, again, the, the Scripture is helping us to see that this didn't happen at the time of Jesus' birth. This wasn't something that occurred when he was still in a manger out with the animals, yet it happened where their home was. And so at least sometime later, not originally when the angels come to the shepherds and have them come and worship. And so I'd ask you just for a minute, suspend that picture that's in your mind, and let's get the truth about what happens in this text from Scripture. Let's look to God's Word and, and set aside what we might know from tradition and see what it is that 
God's word has to teach us about these wise men who had come. Because you see, the king has come, and really, they're the only people that have noticed. They, the, the wise men, and this is the first point that I want you to see this morning, they know of the king. Even when nobody else seems to know of the king, the wise men know of the king. They were looking for a sign. I mean, the, the Bible tells us that they saw this star that rose, the star that was different from the stars that they were coming, uh, accustomed to looking, at, looking for, and they recognized that this was a sign. Said another way, they were paying attention. These wise men that came to seek this king were paying attention, and they noticed when something, not only unusual, but I would dare say miraculous, happened. Right When there was a star in the sky that they had never seen before. I think oftentimes we wonder, we wonder to ourselves, do, do miracles still happen? Well, they do if you're paying attention. I mean, this miracle happened and there was only a few people that were paying attention and recognized it. And yet, they were looking for this sign. And when they saw this sign... I'm quite certain before they ever traveled this distance, they thought to themselves, what does this sign mean? And so the other thing that I want you to see about these wise men is that they knew the promises. Look at, look at their question, their initial question or their initial statement. They say, we have come to worship this child that's been born that is the king of the Jews. They, they knew what purpose they were coming for. They were aware of the promises of God because they said explicitly that they are come to worship the king of the Jews. They didn't come just because there was a star, just because it was something different, just because it was something exciting, although they were perhaps the only ones that noticed this. They came because they knew that there was a promise of God for this coming king, and they saw the star, and they took that to be the sign from God. So not only, did they, not only were they looking for a sign, not only did they know God's promises, but they also came with sincere motives. I mean, look at what the Bible tells us is what they say. What's the reason why they come? They come looking for the king of the Jews, but, but for what? So that they might worship him. It wasn't just curiosity. It wasn't just excitement or intrigue. They knew what God had promised, and they came so that they could worship. And when they come, and they make this bold statement, this bold statement that they have seen this star, and they've gone to God's people. This seems totally logical, right? They've gone to God's people, and they know God's promises, and they say to God's people, well, we saw the star, and we know the promises. Where is this king? And yet God's people, including their king, Herod, are oblivious. That's, that's the next thing that I want you guys to see. Herod is absolutely oblivious to any of this prior to the wise men showing up who actually knew what God was doing and were looking for it and they were paying attention. And so we see that Herod is oblivious. He wasn't expecting a king. He was the king. 
I mean, if I'm the king, I'm not expecting another king to, to show up, right? Unless you mean, you know, my heirs that might be future kings. He was not expecting anybody to show up and be king. And so he's totally oblivious to the things that are happening around him. Now, Herod was a half-Jew, so he, he did have the Jewish culture. He did have the opportunity to know the same things that the rest of his people knew, and yet we see that he doesn't seem to know the promise that they're talking about. You see, the wise men knew the promise because they had studied the word and they had found it and they had recognized that something was happening, but Herod did not know. He was not expecting a king and he did not know the promises. He wasn't looking for a Messiah to come and he probably didn't believe, you know, that at that time the, the people thought that the Messiah was going to come and usher in a new kingdom, was going to rescue them from rule and from oppression. He probably didn't think that he needed to be rescued and he certainly wasn't looking for a Messiah. And so he wasn't expecting a king. He didn't know the promises, but he also didn't know the scriptures. I mean, look at his response to them saying that this king has been born. He has to call everybody together. He has to call in all the scribes, and he has to call in all the chief priests and the religious leaders, and he has to ask them, well, if there was this king, like, where does it say that he would be born at? And notice their response. Like, it doesn't say that they took a long time to think about it. It doesn't say that they consulted with one another. They may have. We don't know. But they immediately respond. It was apparent to them that if what these wise men were saying is true, the place where that child would be born would be in Bethlehem. It was clear. Herod didn't know any of these things. He was totally oblivious to what God was doing, what God has promised, what he had said in his word. And so back to our original question, do miracles still happen? Well, it's hard to believe that miracles still happen if you don't know where to look and you don't know what you're looking for. Nothing looks like a miracle in that case. And so the wise men knew of the king, and we see that Herod is oblivious. But then I want you to see that the religious leaders are apathetic As I looked at this, I, I really feel like they, they just are totally without excuse, and I want you to see why. One, they know the Scriptures. Where Herod didn't know, they knew. They immediately provided a response that was explicit, that, that if this was the king that they were looking for, he would absolutely be born in Bethlehem. They knew where the Messiah would be born, but they weren't looking for a Messiah to be born. They also knew the promise. It's unmistakable. I mean, look at, look at this, because, and I think this just makes such a clear picture. Not only do they respond to tell him where this child would be born, but then they quote the passage that talks about where this child would be born. And if we look at that passage, and I'd like us to, it's over in Micah, chapter 5, so if you flip back a few pages, you'll find maybe Micah, and maybe you'll find it before I do, and maybe you won't. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I struggled in the first service, so there we go. Uh, Micah, chapter 5, we can see this passage that they're quoting, and, 
it makes it clear to me that they understood that this wasn't just about somebody who would be born. Dropping things. This wasn't just about somebody who would be born. This was about the Messiah. And that's why I say it's not only did they know the scriptures, but they, they knew the promises. They were aware of what it meant that they were saying. Micah chapter 5 now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, this is the part they quoted, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. From coming forth, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore you shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You see... There's no question in my mind that they knew exactly what was going on. They knew the promises. They knew the scriptures. They knew exactly what to quote. They knew that they were talking about the Messiah, this king, this promised one that they had been waiting for to deliver his people. And so the next part blows my mind. They aren't moved to action. I mean, we don't know what they did, but what we know is what the Bible tells us is that there is no response. There is no response from these chief priests and these scribes after telling Herod exactly who this Messiah would be and where he would come from. They take no action. It doesn't say that they went into this conference with Herod and the, the wise men. It doesn't say that they set out after the wise men, maybe just to figure out where they were going and also come and worship this king. It doesn't even say that they went later and tried to look around for this king. They took no action. What was the problem? I mean, is it a lack of belief? Is it, is it a lack of, after all these years of the promise of a Messiah, we just can't believe that he's come now and in this time and in this way, even though we're being told from people that aren't even our people that it looks like this promise is being fulfilled? Is it a lack of awe at the things that God is doing? I mean, are they able to sincerely look at a star that has shown up and guided these men here and the fulfillment of a promise of one who would be born and be raised up to shepherd his people and not be in awe of what God is doing? Or maybe is it just a tight grip on the things that they had? Maybe it's a recognition that to take action on this promise means to let go of the control that they had over their people, over their lives. And if there was another king that was coming, that would mean that they weren't in charge. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But as I look at these men, these men who should have been more than anybody, looking for and aware of the promises of God, who should have seen this thing that happened and who should have been overjoyed. Instead, I see, I see apathy. I see them do nothing at all. 
And we, and we have to ask ourselves as we think about how we relate to Christ this Christmas season. I mean, are we in the position of, of Herod, who just is oblivious to this king who has come, who knows not the promises, who knows not the word of God, and who isn't looking for a king? Do we find ourselves in the position of these religious leaders? We know the promises. We know God's word. But we've failed to grab it for ourselves. We've failed to be in awe of the things that he's doing. We've failed to yield in obedience and then to take action when he's called us to do it because of our unbelief, because of our lack of awe, because of just an unwillingness to yield our lives to him. And so we see the wise men, they know of the king. Herod is oblivious. The religious leaders are apathetic. But then we see Herod goes from being oblivious, which is what everybody else was, most of the rest of the people, they had no idea this was happening, to, to really being opposed. And it's one thing to not know that something is happening. It's another thing to stand in direct opposition to that thing that is happening. And that's exactly what we see Herod do. He summons them in secret. I mean, I think that's our, that's our clue, right? That he is, is up to something. You know, you never, you never call a secret meeting when you're not up to anything. He didn't, it would have been logical. He had his chief priests there. He had his scribes there. He could have just asked in front of everybody, asked the wise men exactly his question, which was, what time, did, when did the star come about? But instead of everybody knowing this, he summons them in secret. And he asks them in secret about when this star came about so that he could begin to plot what he would do. And then he also conceals his motives. You see, look at what he tells them. He, come, he summons them in secret. He asks them about when the star came about. And then he says, why don't you go find where this star is leading and then send me word because I'd really like to come and worship him too. Well, we know that that's not the case. How do we know that's not the case? Because at the end of this section, the part that we're not going to read, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph pick up and they go to Egypt to evade Herod and this search to find this child that was born and to put him to death. So he conceals his motives and he hides. He hides his hatred. You see, I think this is interesting because as we think about how people respond to this good news about this Christ child that has been born, there are absolutely people that stand in this spot that Herod does in direct opposition to Christ's lordship. But they don't often say it. I mean, they may be unwilling to yield. They may be opposed to his authority. But for the most part, they hide their hatred. They hide it by saying, well, every way is a way to God. We don't, we don't need just Jesus, but Jesus is good too. When they say that Jesus is just a good teacher, they say that Jesus didn't actually exist at all. You see, they never say, I, I hate his claim to authority over my life. I hate his claim that he is the only one that can say what is right and what is wrong, and I, I reject that, and I substitute my own belief that I can decide what's right and what's wrong for my own life. They never say that, but that's, that's what they mean. 
That's what, that's what Herod means. He rejects the idea that somebody else would be king but him. And so he puts in place a plot to find this one by, by secret meetings and concealed motives and hidden hatred. And so we can see clearly his opposition to Jesus. He goes from being oblivious to being opposed. But I think this is the best part of the whole story, honestly, is this last part. Because as we set the scene for these wise men that have come as they, as they illuminate what's going on for the people of God because they were clueless to it, in their response we see something beautiful because you see these wise men, they, they came knowing about God, knowing about this king, and they left worshiping him. Let's look at what happens here. So after this, this secret meeting and Herod sends them on their way, and I want you to see what the Bible says. If you stop for a second, it's, it's, it's really clear. It says, Behold, the, the star that they had seen when it rose. So the star that they had seen, the one that they had left their homes seeking after. And, and I... I I want to tell you something just to add some clarity. We don't know where these people came from. We really don't. The only thing the Bible tells us is they came from the east, right? And, and the rest of it is tradition. However, if you look at the possible places that they could have come from that were to the east of Jerusalem, they probably traveled something like 800 miles. And whether they rode on a camel or not, I don't know. They might have walked. But they probably wouldn't have been able to cover more than 20 miles a day. So for 40 days, at least, these men have been walking because they saw a star over Jerusalem and they headed out that way and they walked to the people of God thinking his people would know what was going on. And when they failed to tell these wise men where to look for the Christ child, God provided his own map. The star that they had been following, look what it says. It went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So this star that they had, fo that they had followed from another country led them directly to the house where Jesus was. And when they saw the star, the Bible says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. These men, they go from knowledge to worship, and they rejoice at seeing the star move, at seeing what God was doing before their very eyes, they cannot help but rejoice. And the Bible says they're filled with joy, with great joy. You know, I, I thought about what, what this might mean, what, what this feeling would be like. And, and the only thing that I could really equate it to, because you see what, what happens is right before their eyes, they see God move, and they're keenly aware that he is doing something. And, and I think about what we see a little earlier before Christ is born, when, when Mary, who is conceived, goes to her sister Elizabeth, who is, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, 
And when she walks in the door, that baby leaps within her belly. And it is apparent that God is doing something right before their eyes that they cannot explain. It's that feeling that, believer, you, you, you may have had in your life. When it wells up from within your heart, when the Holy Spirit is letting you know that God is working right now in this moment, it may have been a long time since you felt that feeling. But if you want to know, do miracles happen? That's not even the point of this sermon, but it's just something that's sticking with me. You want to know, do miracles happen? Well, every time that you see God move right before your eyes and ordain an event, bring someone who is dead to life, miracles happen. And that's what these wise men were witnessing. And so they were rejoicing exceedingly. They were overcome with great joy at what God was doing. And then when they get to this house, where Jesus is. Upon seeing him, they do the only thing that you could possibly do. They fall down on their faces and they worship. You see, they had traveled from afar because they knew of a promise from God. And when they got where they were going, they realized that the promise was God in the flesh. And the only possible response is falling down in worship. You see, they knew what one of my favorite, one of my favorite passages says in John chapter 1. You want to know how John describes this, this Christ that's coming? Flip over and look with me. John says in, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And down in verse 9, it says, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world which was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You know what, what John is saying is what these wise men realized firsthand, which is this creator of the universe what the what the bible says is the person who through everything was made who nothing was made that he did not have his hand on the one who gives light and life to everything came out of eternity and became part of his creation And so they forsake every impression of dignity that probably would have been afforded to them and they fall on their face before the God of the universe and they worship. And so they rejoice and they're filled with joy and they fall down and worship, but they also realize that he is worthy. 
their, their last response that I want you to see there is they, they take out all their treasures that they had brought with them and they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And even these things of great value, they don't sufficiently represent his endless worth. They probably felt the inadequacy of their gifts as they came to worship this king, and yet they give of everything that they have. Because that's what happens when we worship. When we truly go from knowledge to worship, we stop holding back. We stop hoarding things for ourselves. We stop clinging to things that we believe are ours, and we lay everything at the feet of the king. And we know not even those things are worth it, and yet we do it because he is worthy. The last thing that I, I want you to see this morning, and it's such a, such a beautiful thing when we consider the wholeness, the totality of Scripture, and especially this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. The statement that these, these wise men make when they come to Jerusalem, when they're looking for the Christ child, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And we can't help but be reminded at the beginning of his life of the end of it. As he's nailed to the cross with this sign above his head that reads, Jesus, the King of the Jews. And so their, their inquiry becomes the charge that his people levy against him. This man who would be the King of the Jews. And I, and I think it's fitting. I think it's fitting as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I think it's fitting as we think about this Christmas season. Because one without the other is just meaningless. Well, what do I mean by that? You're like, okay, I'm in church. It's the week before Christmas. And the pastor on stage just said that the birth of Christ is meaningless. Well, without the death of Christ, it is. As we remember this child that was born to a virgin, this child that would eventually grow up and that would be, live a sinless life, that would do everything that the Father asked him, they would never sin against God or another human being, and yet he would be put to death on a cross. Not for what he did, but for what we did. And praise the Lord that he would raise again on the third day, and he would conquer over death, and he would ascend to the right hand of the Father. But without all of that, the birth of Christ, what are we celebrating? A baby? Born without fanfare in a manger? No. Because you see, without the birth of Christ, the cross is also meaningless because what we're celebrating this Christmas is that God condescended from heaven, took on flesh, and was born in the form of a baby. You see, in that sinless child, he was both holy God and holy man. And that, 
That's what brings meaning to the cross. Because only a man could bear the punishment that was due to men. Only a man could take on my sin as a sinful man, your sin as a sinful man or woman. Only a human could do that. But only God could withstand the wrath of God that was due for those sins. And see, without this birth, that doesn't mean anything either. It's just another person that was put to death. But when you hold the two together, when we celebrate this Christmas, this child that came and was born and was sinless and was the Son of God wrapped in human flesh and the life that he lived that was without sin and the death that he died, when, only when we celebrate all of those things together does this story actually mean something. Only then does it have the power to save us. Only then does it have the power to change lives. That God would do that for me is the miracle of Christmas. It just so happens we get to celebrate it in a birth in little pretty mangers with all the things that <laughs> may or may not have been exactly like that. But this morning we get to celebrate it by the taking of the Lord's Supper. As Kevin comes, we're going to have the opportunity this morning to remember that sacrifice. We should. We should, as resurrection people, be remembering the sacrifice that Christ made even at Christmas. And so you have the opportunity to take communion. I, I want to say just a couple of things about that this morning, in case you may be visiting with us about how we do that here. There's some tables set up all around the room, two up front, two in the back there. Um, at the tables, there are, there's, a little, there's a little silver tray, and in that tray is the, the cup with the, the juice and the bread, and it's all stacked together in one cup, so you only need one, one cup per person. And what we'd ask you to do in a minute, I'm going to read, and we're going to pray, but we'd ask you to examine yourself. We don't want you to just hop out of your seat and come and take communion. We want you to use this opportunity to get right before the Lord and before man to make the things right that you can and to come in a pure way to take this supper as we remember and as we proclaim his death. When you come to take it, you come as a family. Take time, pray together, sit as a family. Remember, that's what this moment is about. It's about us remembering the sacrifice and honoring the sacrifice that Christ has made and about us proclaiming his death until he comes again. And so when you're ready, come and you can take the juice and you can take the cup. There's baskets there. We're not going to pass the plate this morning. So I'd ask you to do just like, just like the wise men did in awe of his wondrous worth. Would you just, when you come to receive the Lord's Supper, would you just lay your best gift in those baskets? to the praise of his glorious grace. I'm going to read to you guys, uh, and then I'm going to pray. I, I'm going to read out of 1 Corinthians just because um, I think it's one of, even if it is one of our go-tos, I think it's one of the best whole pictures that we get of the act and reasoning behind the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you. I, don't want to I just want to stop for a second because 
I want to tell you that the other reason that I think this is so important is Paul, Paul wasn't there when they took the Lord's Supper. And yet, this reminds us that this isn't just for those disciples that are sitting in the room. This is for every disciple of Christ, every person that is following Christ from then, 2,000 years forward to now. This is something that we do as his people. What I received from the Lord, I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on that night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, this is exactly as I said. It is for every disciple. But it's not for those that aren't followers of Christ. This is not something that we do ceremonially. This is not something that we do out of rote habit. This is not salvific. It is a response to the gospel and in remembrance of the covenant that we now sit under. That's what, that's what it says. It's a new covenant. It was a covenant that is paid for and written in the blood of the one that ratifies it. And so as we come to take this, we remember that. And then we give ourselves an opportunity to remind each other of the truth that we have a Savior who died for us. But we also, just like it says in that passage, we have a King who's coming again. And so as often as we eat and we drink, we remind ourselves not just that Christ has come, but that he is coming again. And then that passage goes on to tell us we're not, it's not in the part that we read, but that we shouldn't take this supper in an unworthy manner. And so if we come into this room, as many of us do, with a wedge between us and God or a wedge between us and our brother or sister, we should, without a doubt, make that right before we seek to take this Lord's Supper. And so we're going to give you time to do that. We have a number of songs that the band is going to play, and there's going to be opportunity for you to worship. Don't worry. There is going to be opportunity for you to praise his holy name. But what you need to do in this moment right now is get before the Lord. Examine your heart. Examine your motives. And then only when you're ready, come to take the Lord's Supper with your family. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, you are the one who knows the condition of our hearts. Lord, you see not as man sees, but you see what is on the inside. And so it doesn't matter whether we came in here in Christmas colors, decked out for the holiday with smiles on our faces. God, you know the condition of our hearts. Lord, would you reveal them to us? Would you help us to examine ourselves, to understand whether we come to this place this morning in the position of many of the people just oblivious to your promises and your kingship, Lord, and having never considered 
your authority over our lives or whether we sit as the religious leaders who are apathetic to your control. We know it, we've heard it, but it has long since ceased to have power in our lives. Lord, if we sit as Herod, maybe not willing to say it out loud, but in opposition, Lord, we know that you ought to be king. And yet we're unwilling to relent. We're unwilling to give you control in our lives. Or Lord, let us rejoice if we come before you as the wise men, having seen your sign, having heard your promises, knowing your word and ready to fall down and worship for what you have done. God, would you speak to us in this moment? Would you convict our hearts? Lord, that in a moment when we have an opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, we might do it honoring the sacrifice that Christ has made recognizing that he has purchased us. Lord, in proclaiming his death until he comes again. Speak now to your people through this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.